Good morning. Please turn with me or search with me for this morning's scripture reading, which is 1 Corinthians 6 through 20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise, up by, and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is the word of the Lord. This is the part of the show where you want to sign your pre-middle school kid into Sunday school. I think you've all done that. Okay, good. That was easy. So we are, we are looking at ancient wisdom for current issues as we explore what the Apostle Paul had to say 2,000 years ago to Christians in first century Corinth, a church that he had planted there almost five years earlier than, uh, than this, this letter was written. And we're just spending three weeks, we're in the middle of it now, but three weeks focusing on how the gospel of Christianity offers sexual clarity or sexual healing for people who are sexually confused and sexually hurting, which you may remember me saying last week is all of us. The the effects of sin on our sexual identity, it affects all of us. And, and so I, I tried to explain and establish last week that, that when the Christian church talks about, engages in uh, um, the issue of sexuality, we need to be a place where truth and grace are balanced so that people feel it, this is a safe place to get well. This is a safe place to learn and to understand the difference between the wisdom of the world and divine wisdom which Paul is saying to the Corinthians they need for every issue they're dealing with. Every issue, we need God's wisdom, including what to do with our own bodies, including how to understand and carry out our own own lives as sexual beings created by God, to be sexual beings. So about, well, over 50 years ago now, uh, some of the hippies in the room might remember, uh, it's, it's over 50 years since the sexual revolution, and, and, if, and if you know anything about parts of history, you know that not all revolts produce peace and stability. Some revolutions bring more disorder and chaos. You know, we think of the Bible's sexual ethics as, quote-unquote, traditional values. Traditional was never a word that the world thought 
of biblical ethics. When the Bible talked about sexuality, especially in the first century Greco-Roman Mediterranean world, it was anything but traditional. The Bible's sexual ethics were counter-cultural. They were radical. And as a matter of fact, biblical sexual ethics in the century presented with anybody who would listen and understand a much higher view of human life, of the human body, of women, and of children than anything in any culture in any worldview the world had ever seen. Bringing about stable homes and families for those that were willing to submit to the biblical sexual ethic. God's wisdom for sexuality is not traditional at all. We think of it that way because our own society and culture is, is based upon Judeo-Christian worldview. Uh, but, so that's why we call biblical sexual ethics traditional. Uh, when they first came on the scene, they were anything but traditional. They were countercultural. And so uh, God's wisdom for sexuality, being countercultural, the way you see it perhaps the most, the most countercultural aspect is in the way the, the Bible views the human body. And, and you see this most clearly in the biblical concept of stewardship. Regarding our bodies, Jesus Christ doesn't call a person to more autonomy, meaning I have full range and control and dominion over my body and what I do with it. Um, regarding our bodies, Christ calls us out of self-autonomy and into stewardship. Christ calls you, if you're a Christian, or if you're considering Christianity, Christ is calling you into stewardship regarding your body. Stewardship really is the foundation. Biblical stewardship of the body is really the foundation for a healthy sexual ethic and practice. And today, what I want to just talk about briefly as we look at what Paul is saying here in Corinthians chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is really what the ancients thought about their bodies and what the ancients did with their bodies, what we do with our bodies, and then what Jesus did with his body. What the ancients did with their bodies, what you and I do with ours, and what Jesus did with his. What the ancients thought about the human body was based upon their own philosophy their and the way their philosophy informed their worldview, how they understood reality and life itself. So Plato and a lot of other ancient philosophers believed in a dualism, dualism. It's the idea that, that everything, the universe, the cosmos, all of life, everything in the world, uh, everything is divided into two parts. And this dualism basically said there is a spiritual reality and there is a material reality. And it emphasized the importance and the sanctity of the spiritual world and the spiritual aspect of human nature. And it de-emphasized and it played down the material, the physical reality, the physical aspect of our humanity. Um, Nancy Piercy, in a really important book she published recently called Love Thy Body, treats this subject really well and applies it to a lot of different issues. 
Another way of saying what the ancients believed in this dualistic way of looking at the world is to say that the soul was really important, the body less important. The mind, the ability to think and reason is really what needed to be fine-tuned and appreciated. The body, uh, the carcass that housed the mind and the soul was, was going to burn up and die and decay anyway. So what you did with it wasn't all that important. Matter, anything material, was inferior to what was spiritual. The body and the physical world were essentially evil. It was the spirit, the soul that was good. And true salvation, according to the ancients, true salvation was being liberated from your wicked body to achieve true reality, true existence. Eventually, an idea called Gnosticism came along centuries later, and a lot of what you read in the New Testament are the, is, is, is the apostles trying to speak against ideas that would eventually be called Gnosticism centuries later. Now, since the body was temporary, the ancients thought, well, you can do whatever you want with your body. It's decaying. It's going to die anyway. And so sexually, think about how that, how this separation between soul and body, with the body being inferior, think about how that could apply to people's sexuality. Well, the human body could be used or treated however the mind wished. And so in ancient Rome, in ancient Roman and Greek societies, the free adult male was at the top of the sexual food chain. If you were a man and you were free, you were at the top and you had virtually free reign to explore and express yourself sexually with like two exceptions. Incest was a taboo even in that culture. We looked at that last week. Um, and, and, and technical adultery, like if you're a married man uh, taking another married man's wife, that was frowned upon too. But other than that, for free adult men, it was fair game. In the 4th century BC, Demosthenes wrote, the prostitutes we have for our pleasure, the concubines for the daily care of our bodies and our wives so that we can have legitimate children and a true guardian of the house. That was common thinking amongst philosophers that we now praise and remember. This dynamic, of course, incited housewives to seek satisfaction and romance and intimacy where they could get it, competitively seeking out with their own slaves, male or female. Basically, women, slaves, and children in that society had little protection in an open and sexually predatory environment. So this dualism, this, this separation of soul and body with the body being inferior, this permeated the lives of the Christians in Corinth. This, this, was the, this was the world in which they lived. This is the way they thought before they converted to Christianity. And so Paul's pastoral process in writing this letter is to take issues they were dealing with in their day and giving into and helping them re-socialize according to a Christian ethic. 
And you see him doing it right here. Apparently, Christian men in Corinth were openly going to temple prostitutes. This was just a common thing you did. Uh, Sex with a professional prostitute in a temple basically incited the gods to have sex with one another, and it meant that your crops would prosper. You know, fertility between the gods meant fertility and productivity and blessing in your life. That was the pagan way of thinking. It was very common. It was legal, and everybody did it. And apparently, there were Christian men saying, hey, I'm forgiven by God now. My body is decaying and is going to die someday. Therefore, I can do whatever I want with my body. Cheap grace. And so that, that mentality is reflected in verse 12. Paul quotes many slogans that were popular that they were probably saying in, in order to justify what they were doing. And Paul quotes them. He says, all things are lawful. For me. And the word lawful there, it means to be right. It means that something is possible and attainable and permissible for you. So essentially, what they're saying is, I have my rights. I can, I can do what I want with my body. God forgives me. My body's going to die anyway. I have my rights. I can do what I want. And another expression, Paul quotes them saying is, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. Paul counters their thinking with a radical idea. He tells them, your bodies are destined for resurrection. He says in verse 14, his reply to them is, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. The ancient Hebrew scriptures, which Paul and all the apostles in their letters in the New Testament are building on, the ancient Hebrew scriptures radically opposed the dualism that was was rampant in first century society. The ancient Hebrews uh, had looked at things quite differently for centuries. If you read Genesis chapter 1, you discover that God created the physical world And he said what? It is good. He declared it good. And then he created humanity and he declared us very good. We are a holistic, integrated creature. It's not that the body is less important than the soul, uh, but the ancient Hebrews believed in, in an integrated humanity where body and soul were both created as good by a God who declared it to be good. And you see this reflected throughout the Old Testament. For example, Psalm 63 begins with these words, Oh God, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. An integrated human existence, body and spirit. It's human sin, according to Genesis chapter 2 and 3. It's human sin that rips our bodies from our souls and corrupts them both. And in the New Testament, physical resurrection was, it was radical. Nobody believed in physical resurrection. It was radical to hear that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, that human beings would someday rise from the dead. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the promise of the resurrection of every Christian was radical, and it told people, hey, 
God created your body as good. Your body is broken because of sin, but God is going to redeem your body someday. C.S. Lewis said, matter is really important. Actually, I'll quote him. C.S. Lewis said, God likes matter. He invented it. Matter really matters because God created it as good. And then Paul gives them another radical idea. He says, your bodies are not your own. He says in verse 20, he wraps up this portion of the letter by saying, you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Now he's using, notice he's using slavery image there, which, which, makes, us, which makes us squirm, of course. But, but here's his point. He's doing this for a purpose. He's trying to help them see that the Christian is not master of his or her body. Saying you're not a master of your body. Jesus is. And that was a radical thought. See, Christian freedom is not autonomy. It's not self-rule. Christian freedom is stewardship. Stewardship is taking care of something that doesn't belong to you. And what Paul is saying to them is, you say you're free. You are a slave to Jesus who bought you and your body belongs to him. So honor God in your body. Caring for what belongs to somebody else who is coming back to restore it, to heal it completely. I just want to stop for a second. I want to ask you a question. What in Paul's words is unsettling to us? You know, from, from our 21st century perspective, uh, maybe personally for you or just based on your observations from our culture uh, or from our media, from the news or, or from what you see and, and know with your friends or your relatives or, or people you work with, what is it about Paul's words that, that jumps out to you immediately as being very unsettling? Any, any immediate thoughts? What's unsettling about what Paul's saying? Yeah. So, so it's interesting. Your mind went right to, uh, right to life, uh, right to death, uh, sorts of issues. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Any other immediately? Th- what's what's unsettling about what Paul's saying? Yeah. It's just unsettling that we don't have bodily autonomy. I think you're exactly right. Especially in a society where our bodies can be misused and mistreated, and we oppression exists. So if I'm not if, if I can't control my own body, who is going to protect me? Who is going to look out for my rights? I'm not saying that's what I believe. I'm saying that that's, that's something that I do believe. We'd look at this in our world and go, hmm, am I okay with what Paul's saying? Any other initial reactions? What's unsettling about what Paul says? This is helpful for me. Yeah.
Yeah. So America, America is all about independence and self. And, and, and so the, the, the comment, the illustration of, of slave, uh, slave illustration is very unsettling, especially because our own history is plagued with chattel slavery, which was a, a horrendous institution. Uh, so uh, now Paul is writing to a church that was probably composed of, of free people and people who were servants, people who were slaves, people who, who were essentially property. Um, what's different in that case is other than free men, everybody was property. Even free women were the property of their husbands in that society. Uh, so he's writing to people who knew what it was like to be a slave because some of them were slaves. But he applies it to everybody, rich and poor, regardless of their economic or racial background. He says to all of them, you're saying you can do whatever you want. And what I'm saying is, no, you can't because your body has been bought by the Lord Jesus. Any other thoughts? Yeah. It's more convicting than unsettling. Um, if we are stewards of our body, if in a sense the steward is held account, right? Like if I'm a steward of something, it means the owner's coming back to take the keys when they've been away. So, so if I'm a steward of my body, then how I take care of it in every way becomes an issue. Um, so it kind of raises the question for you all. Am I a steward? Um, am I taking care of my body? Uh, and, and of course, that applies in so many different ways. Thank you. Thanks for your thoughts. I appreciate that. What we do with our bodies is also based on philosophy and worldview. What we do and how we think of our bodies, we're indebted to what people have thought and taught and wrote about and sung about for the last three to 400 years since the Enlightenment. And we can't get into all of that. But I will say this, that the ancient dualism that Paul was writing against, it's still here. It's come back in Western culture. The idea that yourself is what really matters, your thoughts, your feelings, your subjective ability to express yourself is what really counts in this life. Your body... You can do what you want with it. Nobody can tell you what you can do with it, except the state. The state can tell you what to do with your body. But what's really important is the self, is, is your ability to think and your ability to express. There was a philosopher just a couple of hundred years ago, a few hundred years ago, who said, I think, therefore I am. And that, that man was a Christian. But the effect of that statement has had enormous implications for our culture. If you don't have the ability to think or rationalize, maybe you're not worth existence, being alive. Our culture devalues biological human life and elevates self-expression. And I'll prove it to you. One example is today's hookup culture, and I want you to think about it. In the hookup culture, there is also a separation between relationship and intimacy, personal intimacy, and sex itself. 
The hookup culture says you can pursue and have sex with whoever you want as often as you want and let that be devoid of relationship and intimacy with the person. That's the whole point of hooking up. It's to have sex and gratify yourself and make no commitment to the person. It's a separation of self and body. It praises self-expression and it denigrates the body. And to show you this, uh, think about it. How many people in our culture are having sex in any way they want with whomever they want and are still completely lonely? I'll quote Miley Cyrus, who in, hold on, who in an interview said this, having sex, she didn't, um, I'm not saying what she actually said, okay? Uh, having sex is easy. You can find someone to have sex with in five minutes. And I thought, well, maybe you, Miley, but not the rest of us. <laughs> anyway, having sex is easy. You can find someone to have sex with in five minutes. Now listen to what she says. We want to, f- we want to find someone we can talk to and be ourselves with. That's fairly slim pickings. Wisdom from Miley. God didn't design sex to be isolated from relational intimacy. Maybe you've heard of the chemicals, the human chemicals, oxytocin and vasopressin. These are chemicals in a man and in a woman that are released during sexual intimacy in order to scientifically to stimulate bonding. Actually, uh, oxytocin in women, it's, it's, it's called the, um, the attachment hormone. It happens when women breastfeed, chemical reaction that attaches them to the child. But it also happens in women during sexual intercourse. And vasopressin is released in men uh, also during sex to stimulate bonding with their partner and with their, um, with their progeny, uh, with their children. And actually, uh, one person wrote, when you sleep with someone, your body makes a promise whether you do or not. And then Paul, 2,000 years ago, in verse 16 of Corinthians chapter 6, says, do you not know that when you join yourself to a prostitute, you become one body with that person? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. He goes back to Genesis chapter 2, where a man and a, fa- uh, where a, man and a woman leave their families of origin and become one New flesh. That's the biblical model uh, that Moses gave the ancient Israelites. And then Jesus reiterated it. And then Paul here. Re- so if, if Moses and Jesus and Paul are all saying the same thing, it's a really big deal. Now, I, obviously, Paul didn't understand uh, future science. But Paul, even though he was a single guy, Paul understood what sex was for. Hypothetically speaking, by by reiterating Jesus' own words, by reiterating Moses' own words, Paul is saying sex is for marriage. That's what it's, it's great, it's wonderful, it's beautiful, and it's been created just like our bodies for a design by a creator. Tim and Kathy Keller in their, in their book, the meaning of marriage say sex is God's appointed way for two people to say reciprocally to one another, I belong completely, permanently, exclusively to you. And in today's worldview, what, what, what do we do? 
what do people do? They give themselves physically without committing any other part of themselves to another human being. It's, 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 the, uh, the Kellers say it's upside down. To give yourself physically is the greatest expression of intimacy and commitment that God has established in the created order. And we give, each, we give ourselves to one another physically, or we give ourselves to a habit physically, and all other forms of commitment are devoid. In this sexually chaotic wasteland, the Bible gives us a way towards healing. A safe, non-condemning environment where people can, in Paul's words, which is kind of the central command of what he's saying, where people can flee from sexual immorality. He uses the word flee. He doesn't just say, think about it, consider this. He says, flee. I think of, I think of Genesis where where Joseph, the young man, he's, he's, approached, he's, a, he's approached by his boss's wife. Powerful, rich woman. He's approached by this woman, and, and he fled so quickly that he lost his clothes. He had to get out of there so quickly. Um, Paul is saying the answer here is, is to flee, is to run away from the world's wisdom and practice about how to see your body and what to do with your body and with your sexuality. Paul says, flee. Now, you know this. If you're going to flee, where are you going to flee to? Somewhere else in the wasteland? That's why it's so important that Christians in our society and the church itself no longer becomes a place where people think they're going to show up and be judged for what they've done. It's got to become a haven where the truth is spoken in love, where truth and grace, as we saw last week from chapter five, where truth and grace are balanced. If we're telling people to flee sexual immorality, if you're a Christian and you're you're praying and hoping that people in our culture will flee from from sexual immorality, they've got to find a healthy, safe place to flee to. I think it begins with body stewardship because we, ha- we have to offer people an alternative. They're going to live the way they live, and, and the results are catastrophic. And, and some of us, many of us, are feeling the results of sexual brokenness. And, and I think we have to start with the concept of stewardship. And, and, and this is going to sound simplistic because we don't have a lot of time on a Sunday morning. Um, but I, I think where we really need to aim most of our focus is, is with our young people. The church needs an approach to sex education because they're getting it in the public schools. Kids are getting it uh, in media, social media, in Hollywood. It, we're being inundated with it. This, the church needs healthy, God-centered, Christ-centered sex education. And I, I really think we build for the future. We pray for the future. Our young people are the future. And we have to begin to foster a safe environment in our homes and as a church where we can speak the truth in love and help each other see and help our young people see that we're stewards of the body that God gave us. I have a warning about pride. Because again, remember, Paul's main concern with the church in Corinth, and you'll see it through every issue he deals with, is pride. Because it was destroying their unity. 
My warning about pride for today is you're a slave to whatever you boast about. That's what's ironic about pride. You're a slave to whatever you're boastful about. And I think that's why Paul, in verse 12, counters their slogan, all things are lawful for me, with this, but I will not be dominated by anything. You say you're free, you're dominated. You're in slavery is what he's telling them. Our society boasts about its sexual liberty and license and openness in a very similar way that the ancient Greeks and Romans did. But think about it. Think about it. 50 plus years after the sexual revolution, was, which was built upon philosophy and worldview for the last 300 years, 50, 60 years later, abuse is rampant. Trafficking, sex trafficking is rampant, especially in the United States, especially in our area. Families are torn apart. Children are born without parents or without a mother or without a father. Americans spend billions of dollars a year on pornography. And Paul says, you're free? You say you're free? Are we free? Is our society free? Or are we enslaved to the consequences of what we've called liberation for 60 years? We're actually held captive by our society's sexual ethic, what it's probably the most proud of if you study the media. We divorce our bodies and our behaviors from divine intent, as though we have created ourselves and have become the measure of all things and masters of our destiny. But it's not so. Pride is, is at the heart of every act of rebellion against our Creator. Rosaria Butterfield, uh, who, who was about as anti-Christian as you can get, very intelligent, accomplished scholar, in upstate New York at Syracuse University, uh, rat, did a very radical thing. Uh, she became a Christian. And, and her own approach, part of her conversion uh, and, and growing up in Christianity as a follower of Jesus Christ meant radically changing her approach to sexuality. Um, uh, she was a member of the LGBT community. And still to this day, she ministers to people in the LGBT community. Uh, but in her memoir of how she became a Christian, she says something that I think we need to hear. Before we can come to Christ, we must empty ourselves of false pride, blame-shifting, excuse-making, and self-deception that preoccupy our days and our relationships. Before we can come to Christ, we must come to ourselves. And I believe what she means by saying we have to come to ourselves is we have to admit that we're enslaved to the wisdom of this world. We're enslaved to the wisdom of this world and what it tells us about what we are free and right to do with our bodies. We have to admit that we're slaves. We have to admit that we need liberation. And Jesus, Paul says, bought you. Jesus bought you with the blood from his own 
broken body. These words, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. These words is how Paul wanted to conclude his discussion. You were bought price. Uh, We spend the most time, the most energy, the most money on what we value most, right? Right? You are going to pay whatever it costs if you really believe in that thing. If you really want and desire and value that thing, you'll pay the market price, whatever it is. In a sense, something is worth what you're willing to pay for it. Well, the incarnation, the Christian idea that God became physically a human being, the eternal Son of God came in the flesh. When you read things like in 1 John, anybody that says Jesus didn't come in the flesh, don't listen to him. That was really important. The fact that God became a, this is still what holds Muslims up. The idea that, that the creator would take on human flesh, but he did. God in the flesh shows the priceless worth of the human body. God took on a body just like yours. That's, that's the insane miracle of the incarnation. And then Jesus in the crucifixion broke his perfect sinful, sinless body to redeem yours. Jesus broke his perfect human body to redeem your human body. Have you ever thought of it that way? Have you ever considered, my friends, as individuals now, have you ever considered what you are worth? You want to put a price on the blood of God? You want to put a price on the broken body of God? That is what you're worth. That is what he was willing to pay to get you out. And in light of that, Paul says, honor God with your body. You're not your own. It's horrifying to think that you're enslaved to a wicked person. But if you're enslaved to Jesus, I can't think of a better person to be with. I can't think of a better person to command every member of my biological existence to tell me what it's for and how it's broken. And as I look in disgust and guilt and shame at my brokenness, say to me, no, it's too valuable for me. I'm coming back to redeem it completely forever. That's what it's worth to me. That's how special your body is. And Paul says, glorify God in your body. God won't waste what he values as priceless. He has invested in it. And the down payment is the Holy Spirit. And your body, Paul says, is a temple of that Holy Spirit if you belong to Jesus. Christ's Resurrection from the dead, the empty tomb, is God's promise that he will restore your body. I mean that quite literally. He has your DNA on file. doesn't matter if you die in a car crash or you're burned up. He has your DNA. And he promises to make you new. Why then sell your body 
to the world. Why then sell, enslave yourself to what the world says is wisdom for you? Jesus bought you for restoration. Jesus bought you for glory. So regarding our bodies, Christ calls us out from a life of self-rule and autonomy into a life of stewardship. That's the way to freedom. The world says, you're free to do what you want. God says, I've freed you to do what I want. And an empty tomb is proof that God's way is the best way, is the path, the only path to healing. Let's pray. Our Lord, thank you for creating us as spirit and body. Uh, Thank you for this marvelous work that we call the human being, men and women, boys and girls. Father, we, we worship you, we praise you, because we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We also grieve along with you that we are broken, and we wait, we wait for the Lord Jesus to return, to restore all things, including our flesh, but until then, help us to live as new people, help us to live as though we're headed for restoration, help us to want your restoration more than our own way. Rehabilitate us. Heal us, Emmanuel. Amen.